thinking about some sabbatical time I have coming up this summer, uh, I've just been reminded of the great privilege it is to bring God's word to you. You know, I've thinking through Paul and thinking through his obvious heart for those congregations that he helped to plant and those congregations he helped to care for. It's just a, a reminder to me of the, the privilege it is to have you, to be able to preach to you who want to hear God's word, you who long to hear the truth of God's word. What a kindness of it is, God, to me, that I get to bring God's word to you. I don't tell you that nearly enough. Uh, my wife reminds me that the English side of me, I, there's something that happens where words just don't come as regularly and as affectionately as they ought to. And so let just just be a moment to say how much I love you and how wonderful it is to stand before you and to give God's word to you. Well, friends, what pleases God? What pleases God? I wonder this morning how you would answer that question. You know, it was many years ago that a gifted young law student was coming home during a break and he was overwhelmed in a violent storm and, and lightning struck and as he was thrown from his horse, he cried out, help me, Saint Anne, and I'll become a monk. And if you know the story, he survived that storm and so he was true to his vow and he became an Augustinian monk, and that man was Martin Luther. Now, the moral of the story isn't that lawyers can't please God. Otherwise, I trust some of you would be in a lot of trouble. Nor is the moral of the story simply that in order to please God, you have to become a monk. Rather, for this man, he understood that's how he would most please God. Friend, I wonder how you seek to please God this morning. Have you ever given thought to that question? You know, maybe it's why you've come to church. Maybe you've come this morning because you think in coming and in attending you are pleasing God. Or maybe you're really coming because you want to appease God. You know, it's a natural question because if there is a God and if all of us one day are going to stand and give an account to him, well, we'd like to think that somewhere along the way, even as Madeline shared in her testimony, that we've pleased him. So what does a life pleasing to God look like? Is it praying the rosary? Is it a pilgrimage to Mecca? Is it daily reciting the Shema? Is your life pleasing to God, and how would you know? Friends, that's the question I want us to be thinking about this morning, and that the Apostle Paul would have us be thinking about this morning as we turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn there, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have Bibles in the seatbacks before you, and you should be able to find 1 Thessalonians 4 on page 987. Page 987. Now, last week, chapters 2 and 3, Paul really presented his apologia, right? His defense for his own behavior. That was much of chapters 2 and 3. And this week, he shifts and he moves from that apology, that defense, to an appeal into some instructions, not with regards to his own behavior, but with regards to their behavior. So we pick up. Verse Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. 
Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So pleasing God, notice that's, that's how Paul opens. He's urging them to, to walk and, verse 1, to please God. So walking is just a common biblical metaphor for living, right? Because the Christian life in the scriptures is not presented like a lottery we win. It's presented as a journey that we make. And Paul's saying that we are to live so as to please God. And notice how he opens is how he closes there. At the end, verse 12, that you may walk properly. He's just restating in verse 12 what he said in verse 1. Walk properly and live a life that is pleasing to God. So those are your bookends right there. This passage is all about that. What does it look like to live a life that pleases God? Everything in the middle, well, that helps. Paul really, he, uh, he, he spins it out for us. And I think as we, as we go to this question, something that's, well, that's interesting is that when we think about pleasing God, where do we naturally go? Well, so many of us naturally go to, to rules, right? Rules, because rules for us, they're very objective. We like rules, believe it or not. We say we don't, but we often do because rules, well, they reduce requirements into something manageable, Rules enable us to what? To check boxes, to feel good about ourselves, right? You've got a to-do list. How good do you feel at the end of that day when you've checked off all those boxes? Now, we like rules in that sense. And though the Bible has rules, nonetheless, here Paul says that we please God not primarily through rules and through regulations, but in the context of relationships, This pleasing God happens in the context of relationships. Paul's saying whether or not your life is pleasing to God has less to do with how many boxes you can check on your own religious to-do list and more to do with how you behave in relationship with others. 
So recognize if you've come this morning and you're not a Christian, well, you got to hear some wonderful testimonies of people who became Christians, right, who gave their lives to Christ. And recognize for you that the essence of Christianity is not what you must do. It's not about those rules in that sense first. It's about being in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's where pleasing God always begins. The only way to have a relationship with God is through his son, Jesus, because Jesus is the one who has kept all of God's ways, his rules and requirements perfectly. He has done what we would not and could not do, and this Jesus is also the one who died on the cross sacrificially for those who have rebelled against God, which is all of us and all the ways we've gone our own way. And it's the same Jesus who died sacrificially in our place as a substitute who also rose victoriously over the grave so that all of those who would see their need for a Savior, see the way they have violated and transgressed God's good laws, have rebelled against him, could be restored in relationship to him through Jesus Christ. And we come to that by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you have come as a non-Christian, that's where pleasing God begins, by establishing a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, and then following him in the fellowship of churches. That's what Christians are called to do, which is why Paul's writing this letter to these Christians gathered there in a congregation. And he's saying to those who have this relationship with Christ, well, he's saying to these individuals, and he's saying basically, in summary, We please God through relationships that honor God. Sort of that's kind of the big idea of 4, 1 to 12. We please God through relationships that honor God. And in verses 3 to 8, we see those relationships are to be relationships of purity, not promiscuity. So that's 3 to 8, relationships of purity and not promiscuity. And then verses 9 to 12, they're in relationships of industry and not idleness. Verses 9 to 12 is going to be the relationships of industry and not idleness. And so those are basically going to serve as our two points as the text naturally breaks down. So we please God through relationships of purity, not promiscuity, industry, not idleness. Okay, so let's think first about those relationships of purity and not promiscuity. And right here, this is an area where often Christians are so misunderstood, right? This, this, this area of sexuality is where we are often so misunderstood. Words like prudish, right? Words like puritanical regularly come to mind. It was the journalist and satirist H.L. Mencken who would say of Christians, particularly their sort of puritanical notions, he would say this kind of puritanism was the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And I think as the world looks at Christians and thinks about that topic of sex, the world often thinks, yeah, when it comes to Christians, they're living in that fear that the someone somewhere might possibly be happy. We're seeing Christians are as anti-pleasure, anti-joy, pro-regulation, and all about repression. Right? That's the word we always hear. 
So in contrast, the world's view of sexuality is largely unconstrained, right? When it comes to sex, it doesn't matter when it happens, whether it's in marriage or prior to marriage. It doesn't really matter who it happens with, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, not, acquaintance, opposite sex, same sex. It doesn't matter why it happens, whether it's in care of another or in care of self. About the only constraint is that it's consensual. The assumption is that where there is a will and where there is a desire, there is freedom and ability. And friends, that assumption of our world is not very different from the assumption of Paul's world, from the Greco-Roman world, and from the culture of Thessalonica, where pretty much everything was acceptable. They even had fertility cults in Thessalonica that promoted and encouraged a kind of sexual licentiousness all under the guise of religion. So to break from that world would have been exceedingly difficult for these brand new Christians. But notice what Paul doesn't say to them. Paul doesn't say to these brand new Christians, he doesn't say, you know what, I know Jesus talked a lot about gouging out the eye and about cutting off the hand. I know he talked a lot about those things, but you know what, I know you're baby Christians. I know you're new in the faith. I know that's a lot to digest. I know that feels overwhelming. I know that's going to come at a great cost to you. So let's, let's dial it back just a little bit. Let's just, let's just aim for a little moderation. Just a little moderation. Jesus will understand. Well, that's in fact not what Paul says. No, he says, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul right there is appealing to the teachings of Christ that he had shared with them in that month or so that he was with them in Thessalonica when they planted that church. And he says, verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, just saying your holiness. And what does that look like? Well, Paul says, namely, it looks like that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 3. Right? Paul is not arguing for moderation. Paul, according to God's word, is arguing for abstention. Abstention is what he says. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can treat the Bible's teaching on sexuality a little bit like we might treat the Bible's teaching on alcohol, right? A little alcohol is fine insofar as it doesn't lead you to get inebriated and intoxicated. And we take that same view sometimes when it comes to sex. And so with sex, right? You can fool around a little bit. You can actually fool around quite a bit so long as, you know, you don't go all the way. That's what you can't do. And so we talk about sexuality often like it's all about moderation. But again, Jesus, and we're helped here, like what was Paul teaching those first few weeks with them? Sexual ethics, no doubt. He's already taught them these things. He's coming back to it. Because for Jesus and for Paul, it's not moderation. It is absolute and complete abstention. Right? The Bible doesn't say you can dabble in sun sexual immorality, it says you must dabble in none. It's why he says, verse 4, each one of you know how to control his own body. Now when Paul says control his own body, 
Paul's not just speaking there to the men in the congregation. That's sort of the generic masculine. That's his way of addressing the whole congregation. You know, there's a word for man. If he wanted to speak just to the men, he could have used that word. Instead, remember, he, he, he opened each one of you, every one of you hearing and receiving this letter. He's addressing all of them because he knows sexual immorality is a temptation for both men and women. And each one of you must learn this. Paul is leaving no room for excuses. You know, but my marriage is loveless. My spouse doesn't treasure me. My spouse doesn't pursue me. My spouse doesn't find me attractive anymore. Paul's saying it doesn't matter. My spouse is indifferent to me. My spouse seems repulsed at the thought of being with me. That other person, they do appreciate me, and they tell me. Paul says it doesn't matter. Oh, but, but I'm not married. How is that fair? What does God expect me to do? He made me this way. I have needs. Paul says it doesn't matter. We all have our reasons. We all have our justifications. And Paul here is closing the door on everyone. And notice where he closes off his argument in verse 8. Whoever disregards this, disregards what? My present opinion, Paul says. Some prudish and puritanical beliefs that I might have. Some leftover of my past life of Judaism. No, he says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God. Disregards God. Paul's saying to reject this teaching is not just to reject me, it is to reject God himself. Right? So much for excuses. So much for sort of situational ethics. Here's the thing. Friends, sexual pleasure is not some accident of human biology. I know that's what some would have you think. That's not the case at all. It is God's gift to us, pleasure in sexuality. It's his gift. God created sex. He wants to be, us to be passionate about sex. He even wrote a whole book about sex. But he knows like any good gift, sex can be abused. And the Bible is very honest about that abuse as well. Right? We need to look no further than, than the account with David and Bathsheba, whose illicit relationship resulted in so many dashed dreams, so many broken bodies, so many suffering souls, and death. Multiple deaths just in that one illicit relationship. And so God puts boundaries in place. And he puts those boundaries in place not because he doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves, but because he wants to keep us from destroying ourselves. That's what the boundaries are for. And that design was very clear from the start. One man and one woman for life. To deviate from that plan is to invite pain and despair and very ironically, a lot of displeasure. Which is why we are so regularly warned in scripture. The body is not meant for sexuality. Okay, time out. It is in the right relationship. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Read the verse right. 
not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He goes on, flee from sexual immorality. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And then he begins sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature begins again, Colossians 3, 5, sexual immorality. Ephesians 5, 3, but there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, right? I could just keep going. I haven't even mentioned Romans 13, which we read in this service all over the New Testament is that consistent command. The Bible simply has no category for a Christian that is indifferent to their own sexual purity. Doesn't have a category. And why is that? It's because to act in any other way, in impurity, as he says, to act in any other way is to, in fact, defraud another. So look down at verse 6. Paul says, it is God's will that we must abstain from sexual immorality, that we know how to control our bodies. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You know, that word for transgress just means to go beyond the proper limits. It means to violate. And that word for wrong, it means to take advantage of. It carries the notion of cheating exploiting, or that older word, defrauding, which means to engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage is to violate and cheat someone. It is by an act of deception to take what does not belong to you. It is to defraud them. And you see, it is the very opposite of love. So love seeks the good of another. Love is transparent. Love is sacrificial. Love is kind and honest. And yet, what is sexual immorality? Well, sexual immorality may masquerade as these things. It may dress itself up in love. It even may make sincere and poetic professions of love. But in the end, it merely pursues selfish motives through its own deceptive means toward its own destructive ends. It is anything but loving. So if you are a Christian listening to these words, you need to listen carefully. Because when you engage in sexual immorality, you become a liar and a cheat. That's what Paul says. You lie because you are promising an intimacy and a commitment that you have no clear intent to fulfill, and you cheat because you are taking for yourself what belongs to another. But we're in a relationship, you may say. We even hope to marry one day, you may say. Well, friend, if that's the case, recognize all you are doing is spelling out the kind of behavior you think is acceptable with someone who isn't your spouse. Is that really the pattern that you want to set? Is that really the kind of person you'd like to marry? But you're being a little too hard, Brad. I mean, come on. Certainly, we wouldn't behave that way once we're married. Oh, How do you know 
It's not like sexual temptation magically ends at the altar. For many, male and female, sexual temptation is only excited by the altar. If you can't learn to control yourselves now with one who isn't your spouse, what confidence do you have that such self-control will miraculously appear after marriage? Brothers and sisters, we need to be unsettled by Paul's words. If there is a place where the world has penetrated the church, it is so often in this area of sexuality. We don't need to hear the stats again. You've heard them plenty of times. Many of us don't need stats. Many of us know it personally. Sexual promiscuity has no place in the lives of God's people because God takes sex seriously which is why you need to take your own purity seriously. And I know at the mention of purity, right, the temptation for some is to laugh, right, cue the talk of purity culture once again. Didn't you read the Washington Post? Didn't you know that Joshua Harris gives big, big, you know, mea culpa, whatever. Some of you know what I'm meaning. If you don't, don't worry about it. Explain it later. Point is, many will argue such purity talk as he gave in his sort of mea culpa, is, is unhelpful, it's misguided, it's even dangerous. But my friend, if that's you, I mean, do you really think the world has the answer? Do you really think the world is speaking in a position of authority? I mean, look around. The world is awash when it comes to confusing uh, when it comes to uh, sex, there's so much confusion. For 60 years, at least in this nation, we have been experimenting when it comes to sexuality. And we keep fiddling with the equation, trying to come up with the answer. So we dump monogamy from the equation. Oh, that doesn't seem to work. Well, how about we exchange heterosexuality for homosexuality? That doesn't seem exactly to work. Well, then let's get, let's get rid of progeny, right? Let's get rid of kids. Let's have relationships without children. And does that work any better? No. Well, then let's introduce pornography. And friends, that clearly doesn't help either. Which is why we are called to control our own bodies, not in the passions of lust, Paul says in verse 5. Friend, lust is the great enemy of sex. We think it serves sex. All lust does is undermine sex. If you've got confusions about that, I mean, just consider two different pictures. Two pictures. And for the sake of, of this illustration, I'm going to address men. But I recognize that lust, right, that exists within women and within men. But for the sake of illustration, I'm just going to use the example of a man here. The first image is, is one of a man who's committed to sexual purity, a man committed to living with sexual integrity. And such a man is careful to live and to talk and to love and to lead in such a way that his wife finds joy and satisfaction and freedom and fully giving herself to him. Sex is not just an isolated act in that relationship. Sex is not some, well, it's not some legalized form of lust in that kind of a marriage. Sex is not used as manipulation, 
but it is a fulfillment of the entire relationship and it is enjoyed without pain and enjoyed without shame. That's the biblical picture. But consider another man, a different picture. By contrast, this man, he effectively lives alone. Directed inwardly and not outwardly, his sex drive becomes an engine for his own lust, for his own self-gratification. Pornography becomes the essence of his own sexual interest. And so rather than pursuing his wife, he leers over pictures of others in order to be rewarded with arousal that comes without responsibility, without expectations, and without demands. This man gives little thought to his appearance, gives little thought to his hygiene, gives little thought to his own moral character. Instead, his eyes roam across images of unblinking faces leering at women who make no demands upon him, who never speak back to him, and who can never say no to him. There is no respect, there is no love, nothing more than the using of women as sexual objects for his own isolated and inverted sexual pleasures. Those are two images, two drastically different pictures, and they couldn't be more striking, and the differences between them could not be more devastating. Every day, we have a choice about who we will be and about who we will serve, and about how we will love. Your decision about lust is finally a decision that's not just about your marriage, it's not just about your spouse, it's finally a decision about your own soul and your relationship with God. And God is not opposed to lust because he's opposed to pleasure. No, he is opposed to lust because he's committed to our pleasure. Now, the lie we believe when we're caught on that treadmill of shame, exhausting ourselves of our own willpower, the lie we believe that Satan would have us believe is that we can't change, right? We're, we're trapped in that. And so long as you rely upon your own strength, the reality is you probably won't change. Which is why, perhaps, it's why he closes the way he does in verse 8. Whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Notice how in holiness, if you didn't catch it this week as you read, notice how the, the whole Trinity is at work in this work of holiness. Right? We follow God's will, verse 3, by submitting to Christ's words, verse 2, through the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 8. All at work in us. It's why Christ sent his spirit. So the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8.3. Friend, do you believe, Christian, do you believe that, that God will do this work in you? Do you believe he can? Do you believe he's the kind of God who's about that kind of change? Will you believe the joy of holiness is better than any fleeting pleasures of sin? Will you contend with God? Will you pray through his spirit? Will you submit to his word? And will you call on your fellow brothers and sisters for aid to help you and help you fight? Friends, God changes people. He is in the business of change and he does it every single day. 
Now, I recognize for some of you this may sound like news that's wonderful, but kind of a little bit too late. Maybe you think your past is too sordid to repair. Maybe you've had some sexual sin committed against you. Maybe you've been defrauded and you're not sure how much of you is left to give to another. So you're tempted to live with anger. You might be tempted to live with guilt, with shame. I just want to say two things. First, for those wrestling with the demons of sexual abuse, God has not forgotten you. Look at verse 6. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. In other words, the Lord will dole out justice, perfect justice deserved for sin. Either upon, that justice will come either upon the one who perpetrated that sin and that justice will be for eternity. Or that justice will fall upon his own son. One way or another, justice finally will be served for you. And so my encouragement, if that's you, is to trust him, to leave it to him. This is the God who never defrauds his children. But second, for those of you who might be feeling like your own sexual past is too much to overcome, just think again to, who's, to whom Paul's writing. Who's Paul writing to? I mean, promiscuity was just embedded into the very fibers of their society. And not only that, it was part of their previous religious identity, which may have been why he needed to push so hard here, because it would have been so hard to break them from it. They would have such a past in it. But Paul doesn't say, yeah, you know what? Oh, I heard about that past. Sorry, it's a little bit too late for you. You've missed out on God's will for you. That's not what Paul says. No, he still holds it out to them. He said, Christ has dealt with you. Brother and sister, as Jeremy led us in prayer, there is no condemnation for you. So leave the past to God. And look forward to the work that not only he can do, but that he has promised he will do through you in Christ. So we please God through relationships of purity and not promiscuity. And yet, moving on, secondly, he's going to help us see in verses 9 to 12, we also please God through these relationships of industry and not idleness. Now, I had initially titled that indolence, and I was talking with my family last night, my wife just rolled her eyes, like, oh, come on, not again. I'm like, indolence is a great word. The English language has a breadth of wonderful words. I liked it. She's like, don't use it. So, idleness. Industry, not idleness. So, let me try and illustrate, I think, what's happening in this way. You know, you all know what it's like to go out in a group and to go out for a meal, And you go out for a meal, and you've had this wonderful meal. But, of course, what always happens, the servers, they don't want to do 15 separate checks, right? So they do one check. And so you get one check. You all look at it. You pull out your wallet. You throw some cash at the middle, and one unlucky fellow has to sort of add it all up. And all of a sudden, you're like, okay, the bill was for, you know, $300, and we have $200. Everyone's like, hmm, we're a little short. So the guy's like, okay, did, uh, did you all think about tax? I mean, it's like 10% in Fayetteville. Yeah, tax, okay, all right. Some guy's pulling down their wallets. All right, I'll throw a few more down. Uh, did you all factor in the tip? 
Some of you forget about the tip. More people grab out their wallets, put a little bit in, and you've thrown a lot of more bills on the table, and guess what? You're still short. And so if you finally get to that point where someone's like, oh my word, we're going to be here all day, clearly no one's going to sort of ante up. And so someone or a few people throw out more bills, probably double what they should have paid, and now finally the bill is met and you can walk out and everyone's happy except for those few folks who pay double. So what was the problem? There was a freeloader. Someone was freeloading in that group. Someone wasn't paying their fair share. That's what was going down. And so other people had to make up the need. And it seems that that's a bit of what was happening in Thessalonica. They had a bunch of freeloaders in the congregation. Those who weren't pulling their weight. Now it's possible that some in the church community there had lost work due to persecution. They were therefore suffering financially. That would have been likely in some cases. And we know from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, if you were to go read 2 Thessalonians 3, he warns them in 2 Thessalonians 3, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. He goes on later, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, 3.11. So it appears that some in this very young Christian community would have taken Paul's teaching about the second coming of Christ, and they would have had a lot of this sort of, this eschatological excitement. The Lord is coming, right? A hysteria around the parasy, whatever you want to say. They're excited, and they stop working. They stop working. It made them idle. They begin waiting, and they become dependent upon the generosity of others. And so Paul's moving kind of from this image of chastity to to this issue of charity in verses 9 to 12. And he roots again all these instructions in love. He commends them for the love they have for one another in verses 9 and 10. And he seems to do that. He commends them because he recognizes how this issue of freeloaders in the congregation could breed resentment, could breed frustration. It could test those bonds of love that are strong. So he commends them for it. And as he commends them for it, he's saying, listen, true brotherly love won't take advantage of others. Which is why you're to love even more and more, he says, and before he even finishes the thought, and you ought to aspire, verse 11, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Right? They're to be industrious, not indolent. Right? They're, to be, they're to labor, not be lazy. Brothers and sisters, God values our work. He values our work. He created us to work. And in our productivity and in our own create, creativity, we image this God who himself works. And we could image him at the kitchen sink. We can image him at the computer. We can image him at our work at a construction site. He calls us to be industrious as he is not idle, because idleness suggests that God is actually not, in fact, concerned with how we live. It undermines his own authority as we place ourselves in the position of deciding what we will and won't do and what must and what must not get done. It suggests, again, that God himself is idle. It depreciates the value of work. And in idleness, what we end up becoming is we become thieves, 
We're not stealing from another what doesn't belong to us. We're stealing, well, kind of, but not in the sense of a body, but time, stealing time that doesn't finally belong to us, time that is not ours for our own ends. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, manual labor was loathed. It was consigned to slaves, and yet it's interesting, Paul says, and he affirms those, verse 11, who work with their hands. They work with their hands. And notice he's already given himself as an example of this. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says he himself worked night and day, right, working with his hands as a tent maker night and day. And why did he work so as not to freeload, so as not to be, he says, a burden on any of you? So you may work at computers and you may change diapers. You may do one or the other. Maybe you do both. You might lay brick. You might write legal briefs for work. What matters to God is not the position. It's your practice in it. Which is why it's always better to be pure than smart. Always better to be upright in our dealings than successful in them. For not only does this honor God, but look, verse 12, we're to live this way so that he's giving a purpose, the reason we're to live this way for the purpose that we may walk properly before outsiders, as in we may win their respect, he says, and not be dependent on anybody. So members of UBC, let me speak to you. Members of UBC, by our conduct, by the way in which we work, Wherever we work, whether or not that's in the classroom, whether or not it is in the boardroom, how we work preaches the gospel. What gospel is being preached in your work? What gospel is being preached? What message do those around you hear as they listen to your life? What message are they hearing? Ethics are good? Well, insofar as it's expedient. That effort is good? Well, effort's good at least when we're being examined. Is that the only time effort is good? That biblical priorities are paramount unless there is a promotion on the line, in which case, yeah, we can sidestep some things. God intends our conduct at work, in the home, in the office, in the classroom, wherever we work, he intends it to commend the gospel, which means some of you will need to take a good long look at how you spend your time and the way in which you spend your time and things like screen time. For perhaps the single greatest detriment to some of our productivity is that connectivity we have every single day. The hours we waste scrolling or trolling when God means for us to be working and laboring for others. You know, it also means some of us are going to have to beware of that entitlement mentality. I don't understand how I keep getting checks from the government. Now, I mean, at one level, like, we're all like, okay, who's going to complain? But, but we feel it, that entitlement age. And we can talk as if everybody owes us something. Everyone owes us. Society, we feel due. Paul is saying, to the best of your ability, live so as not to be dependent on anybody. And he doesn't say that so that you can use that independence as an opportunity for pride, but so that you may be able to lovingly provide for others, and therefore in doing so and in that provision, commend the gospel in your care. 
Now, if you happen to find yourself unemployed here this this morning, unemployment and idleness are not the same thing. Really clear there. They are not the same thing. Unemployment is a statement about whether or not we have work. Whereas idleness is a statement about how we conduct ourselves in our work. So if you find yourself unemployed, that doesn't mean you must still be idle. You can use that season of unemployment for wonderful ends. And if you, have some, if you need some help in that, you can talk to me or Stephen. We can give you tons of things to do even here at the church. There are ways you can serve and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Lots that can be done. But also, this passage doesn't mean it's wrong as a Christian to come into a season where you feel stuck and you need financial assistance. So Paul here is speaking to people who have voluntarily chosen to be dependent on others. And yet for some of us, often due to circumstances outside of our control, we find ourselves dependent and in need of others. And God is glorified when his family together provides for one another's needs. And that kind of loving, caring provision is part of what's meant to promote the gospel to a watching world. So if you are a member of this church and you find yourself in financial need, if you find yourself at an economic crossroads, come talk to an elder. We would be delighted to talk to you. We have these conversations regularly and we want to try and help you. If you're a member who sees yourself and you look at your situation and you see you have the ability to meet needs well recognize one of the funds we use to meet the needs of those within the body is our benevolence fund and you can give to that fund you can support that fund to assist others who are in need friends i opened by asking that simple question what pleases god So often we reduce that question to rules and to regulations. Paul is turning us here toward relationships. Not the monastic life, as initially the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul, goodness, Martin Luther. Not the monastic life that Luther thought, but more of a relational life that is given in love. These kind of relationships marked by purity, not promiscuity. By industry, not by idleness. Friend, does that life describe your life? Do you think your life is pleasing to God? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray and we come before you and we recognize that the the calling is high and we feel like so often our abilities and our conduct falls short. And so we come in the blood of Christ, delighting in the forgiveness we have in Christ to know that that work you have begun, you will complete. And so we look to that and we look to the one who has fulfilled what we can't fulfill on our own. And we take strength in that even as we go and we labor in such a way as to please you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.